Jim Elliott came to know Christ at a young age. Uh, he grew up and went to Wheaton College. Wheaton College is up in Chicago. And while at Wheaton, he felt a call to uh, potentially be a missionary. He didn't know where or how that was going to happen, but he felt this calling that maybe uh, God was asking him to step out of the United States and serve people who had not heard the gospel. So he just had this stirring within him while at Wheaton College. There was another student there named Elizabeth. Elizabeth felt the same calling, and she felt this stirring within her. I think God is calling me to, to serve outside of the United States. I'm not sure where. Both of them ended up separately in Ecuador, and they began to try to navigate what this missionary life was going to be, Jim and Elizabeth. And they met up, and they met up in Quito, the large city there in Ecuador, and uh, they were married a few months after meeting up. So both Wheaton students, both had arrived separately, both had reconnected in Ecuador, and then they married. You see Elizabeth down here in the bottom picture. This is Jim Elliott. And they had this heart that uh, maybe there's people in Ecuador that have never, ever heard the gospel, not even... Not even an ounce of it, not any of the story, never heard the name of Jesus, never seen a Bible. And they began to research and several groups presented themselves as options for them to minister to, but the AUKUS tribe was a tribe that absolutely had no idea who Jesus was. A jungle people, really tribal Indians deep in the jungle of Ecuador, and they knew without a shadow of a doubt, this young married couple, this is who they were going to serve, going to be missionaries together to the AUKUS tribe. Well, how do you do that? The AUKUS tribe was known in Ecuador as a people who have 100% of the time murdered outsiders. No one has ever encountered the AUKUS tribe and then walked away, all right? So you, you go into the jungle, you meet the AUKUS tribe you die. That's basically what these people are known for, a very welcoming kind of people, right? Hospitality, not one of their strong suits. And so they just said, these are the people we're going to minister to. Well, how do you do that? Well, Jim, along with four other missionaries, began to come up with a plan. They had access to a plane, this little yellow plane that you see. And they had access to a plane, and they thought, you know, maybe we begin to drop some supplies, some gifts, earn some goodwill with these people. Let's do that over the course of weeks. And that's what they began to do. Boxes falling out of this yellow plane in the sky, right on the edge of this uh, river where they could see, hey, maybe one day we could land right there on the beach of this river. And so week after week, they made these deliveries, medicine, uh, gifts, food. And these people uh, would come out once the plane had gone and uh, apparently would gather these gifts. And uh, then they decided, hey, it's time to land. So five of them, five of these missionaries, all men got in this plane and they landed on the bank's of the river, and they waited. And after a day or so, two people walked out of the jungle very uh, cautiously, suspicious of who these folks were, but recognized the plane. And so you see one of these pictures, one of the early encounters with one of these uh, AUKUS Indians. We're told that Nate Saint, one of these missionaries, actually took one of these guys up in this yellow plane and flew around, landed back. Can you imagine that, right? They've never seen, they've never seen outsiders. Uh, very, very rare that they would encounter anything of civilization. All of a sudden, one of them was flying around in the yellow plane, you know. And they began to form some relationships. And uh, after a few days, these Indians retreated back into the jungle. And it was, I, I believe, five or six days of silence. Nobody showed up. 
And so here are these missionaries camping out on the banks of this river, and nobody is anywhere to be found. And uh, uh, about five or six days in, two women appear out of the jungle. They approach these women to say hello and offer greetings, and they realize very quickly that they're about to be ambushed. Men come from every angle, and they have these spears, and these five men are speared to death on the banks of this river. And so as I'm reading this story, Liz and I read a few books that had told us some of this story growing up, but as I'm rereading this this week, here, there's two options, right? These these, uh, men are martyrs and heroes of the faith, or they're just fools. These people kill, they will kill you. 99% 99% of us would just be like, no thanks, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not going. They're either heroes and martyrs or they're, or they're fools. The question for Jim Elliott and these missionaries and the question we're asking this morning as a part of this Holy Bible series is, is the Bible trustworthy? If these men read the Bible and believed in the Great Commission so much that they, we just went, we'll go wherever you call us, God. We will do whatever you do, whatever you, you ask us to do. Is the Bible trustworthy? That's the question we're asking. We could go several ways with this. Number one, we could spend some time on apologetics. You know what apologetics is? This idea that you just you, you defend your faith. And so we all become attorneys, you know, and we, we're armed with our argument. We're armed with a certain amount of knowledge, and we go into battle. We go into the court of public opinion, and we begin to uh, have this apologetics engagement with people that says, you can trust this Bible. Let me tell you why. Here's my 20 points, and here's what I have to back it up, and that's great. There's a lot of interesting things out there. Manuscript evidence, if you ever want to look into this. It's fascinating. The archaeology of the manuscripts and the the Dead Sea Scrolls and thousands and thousands of copies of the scriptures that were passed down through the ages. You can look into variances, meaning if you get a manuscript and I get a manuscript, we put them together, there are slight variances. And people, as you would imagine, freak out over this, right? So you're spelling a few things differently, and this, has, this word is in a different order, and we begin to go, is this legitimate? Can we trust this? Who put this together? We could spend some time on that. Number one, I'd bore you to death. Number two, I'm not an expert, all right? So I don't, I'm not armed with the, uh, with the arguments to even engage in apologetics on that level. I, uh, most of us are not. Secondly, we could talk about biblical inerrancy, which just means, is uh, this 100% true and accurate? Can we trust it because it's 100% true and accurate? And of course, we can engage in those conversations. We could discuss, uh, are the scriptures being, uh, are they literally true, but not everything in them is true literally? So the difference there is when Jesus says, I am the vine, we're not seeing, you know, vines uh, growing out of, of, his, of his garments. And when he says, I am the door, right? He's not literally a door. So we could just, we semantics all day long and we could go back and forth. Uh, again, I'd bore you and I'm not the expert for that. There are some questions that I would uh, have you ask and they are this right here. Is the Bible... Man's speculation, or you could put opinions right there. Is the Bible man's speculation about God, or is this God's divine revelation about himself? Would you just read that again on your own? Because for me, I had to read it like six or seven times just to go, yeah, what do I, what do I believe right here? Second set of questions is this. Is the Bible man's primary way of speaking about God? We got this book, 
We're going to tell some stories about him, and that's what the Bible is. Or is the Bible God's primary way of speaking to us? You must ask yourself these questions in order for us to engage in this series on a serious level. And so there are three things I want to point out, and we'll move through these pretty quickly. Can we trust this book? Number one, we can trust this book because the Bible says it's God's word. If you and I are writing this, most of us would not have the discipline to avoid our rants and opinions and taking credit for this stuff. I can't get on Facebook I'm well-intended. I'm going to write something about, and then I, all of a sudden I'm sharing opinions about things and engaging in, in, in argument. I mean, does anybody relate to that? We can't even post 200 characters without infusing ourselves into the story. And what happens in the Bible is these writers of all of these books repeatedly over and over are reminding you and I, these are not my words. These are not my words. I do not take credit for this. Exodus 4, the Lord spoke. The Lord spoke. To Moses. Joshua 3, listen to the words of the Lord. The Lord spoke this. 2 Kings, I delivered this word through the prophets. This is God's word, and I gave it to the prophets. Psalm 119, a couple different places. Your word is settled in heaven, and your word is a lamp unto my feet. 2 Timothy, uh, AK spent some time on this last week. It's breathed out by God. Literally, the breath of God. These words are not our own. And so repeatedly over in the scriptures, we did not write this. This is not our idea. We did not do this. Second Peter, this is not man-made, uh, but spoken by God. Second Peter 1. 1 Thessalonians 2. Take this for what it really is. It's God's word. And so can you trust this book? The scriptures are reminding us over and over, this is the word of God. Secondly, and I think even more compelling, is that Jesus repeatedly says, this is the word of God, and it can be trusted. Where do we see that? First of all, Matthew 5, and we, we saw this in the Gospel of Mark series that we were in. Jesus said, hey, I didn't come to get rid of the scriptures. So he grew up as a young Jewish man, and he would have had a copy of the, of the scriptures, or at least engaged in, in, uh, in the synagogue, interacting with the scriptures. Uh, and he said, I didn't come to get rid of those scriptures. Uh, I came to fulfill them. I am the fulfillment of what you know in the scriptures. So I'm not disconnected from the Old Testament. New Testament and Old Testament are not these warring testaments where you go, how does this all make sense? Jesus goes, hey, I actually came to make a connection to the Old Testament, right? I am the new covenant, but I'm, I'm tethered there. I came not to abolish the law or the scriptures. I came to fulfill them. Fascinating that Jesus in the, in the Bible, he quotes from 24 different books of the Old Testament. Do you know that? 24 different uh, books are quoted uh, through the mouth of Jesus, and he does so in, in, in the scriptures. There's 78 different times that he does so. 78 times he's quoting scripture, he's referencing scripture, he's using scripture to teach. Matthew 4, you've heard this one. It says, man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's not, that wasn't new out of his mouth. He was referencing Deuteronomy 8. Matthew, uh, later in that chapter, Matthew 4.10 Jesus quotes scripture to Satan. I mean, AK said this to us last week. If Jesus is armed with the scriptures as his main line of defense against the enemy, it seems like a good idea for us, right? 
And so Jesus is having this dialogue, this war with Satan, and he actually says to Satan, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. That wasn't him uh, off the top of his head. He had that in his heart from Deuteronomy 6. He's quoting the scriptures. Luke 4, you know this story? You remember this? Jesus shows up in the synagogue and uh, he stands to do the reading. So just like uh, uh, Ashley led us in a reading earlier, Jesus stands up to, to read and he unrolls the scroll, unscrolls the scroll, whatever it is that you do to a scroll to open it. That's what he does. So he opens this thing up and he begins to read from Isaiah 61. They would have heard Isaiah 61 before, but never like this. Never like this. Jesus himself is standing in the synagogue. He stands to read and this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me Because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Jesus himself is standing in the synagogue. And for the first time, they are seeing the fulfillment of the prophet Isaiah from chapter 61. Matthew 27, Jesus is hanging on the cross And you remember what he says, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember that? In his moment of anguish and agony, that that didn't just come to his mind randomly or spur of the moment, top of his head. Jesus, as a young Jewish boy, would have been, uh, in some cases, handed a copy of the Psalter. They may not have had a copy of the Old Testament, but they might have had a copy of the Torah, beginning of the Old Testament. They might have had a copy of the Psalter, which just means the Psalms. And what that, what that copy would have done for them is, is the, the synagogue would say, the, uh, this, these are the 150 songs that we will sing the rest of our lives. So if we did that at Bayou City Fellowship and you came to Cornite, you joined the church and we handed you a, a hymnal and we said there's 150 songs, we will never sing anything else. Go, right? You would know these songs, especially if you spent years here. These songs would stir within you. I mean, that last song we just sang, we've only sung that like six times. Y'all act like y'all been singing that for 10 years, you know? And so 150 of these songs, Jesus would have known by heart. They would have stirred in him. He would have prayed them and sung them. would have been a part of large gatherings. And so when Jesus is on the cross, his final moments, and he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was quoting the scripture. The scriptures were a part of his everyday life, even up to his last breath. And so uh, the word of God, it says it's the word of God over and over and over. And Jesus says, hey, this is the word of God. You can trust this. It's, a, it's an essential part of my, my ministry. And then lastly, thirdly, the Bible has proven itself or it has predicted the future. So how do I know I can trust this? How is this thing trustworthy? The Bible's been right. It's it's predicted correctly. Every year, I predict that the Rockets are going to win this thing, you know? And I'm usually wrong. God help us. The scriptures say this. The Messiah will be a descendant of David. That's 2 Samuel. 
So he's saying, here's the family he's going to come from. The Messiah will be called God's, God's own son. That's Psalm 2. The Messiah will be forsaken, pierced, and vindicated. That's Psalm 22. The Messiah will be born of a virgin. That's Isaiah 7. That's crazy. That's, that is, honestly, I can't imagine hearing that prophecy. I mean, it'd be like somebody saying that today. You're like, you, 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 you don't necessarily understand how this works, okay? That's not possible. That's crazy. There's no reason for Isaiah to even mention that. The Messiah will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. That's Isaiah 9. The Messiah will perform signs of miracles and healing, Isaiah 35. He will be preceded, uh, preceded by a forerunner, Isaiah 40. Who's the forerunner? John, remember we studied this? John, John came before to prepare the way. The Messiah will be beaten and will suffer, Isaiah 52. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5. That made no sense. Random, small town, uh, meant nothing in that day. The idea that you would go, yeah, the, the, the king of kings is going to be born in that little town. That, that prophecy makes zero sense. No reason for them to say that. The Messiah will arrive in the city riding a donkey. Again, that's ludicrous, almost insulting. Zechariah 9. The Messiah will be uh, betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Not just that he's going to be betrayed, that's radical enough to prophesy, but that, hey, it's actually just going to cost 30 pieces of silver and they're going to hand this guy over. Zechariah 11. And then Isaiah 53, where we're going to end this morning. Isaiah 53 says, he will be killed on our behalf and he will be raised from the dead. If you got a copy of the scriptures, would you go there with me? Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53, verse 3, says this. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with him, his wounds, we are healed. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the prophesying of the death of Jesus, not in vain, but on our behalf. Verse 11, same chapter says very simply, Isaiah the prophet, verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, meaning Jesus, out of the anguish of Jesus' soul, he shall see and be satisfied. What is he talking about? Death will not win. The grave will not hold him. He will rise again. You know that the prophecies exist. You've read some of these. Here's what's amazing, and this is why I think this is a strong reason to trust what the Bible says. These prophecies were not a few years before they weren't real time like me and you where we're, we're, we're giving Twitter updates and we're getting our news real time. These were 700 years before Jesus was even born. 700 years before Jesus shows up. The prophet is saying he'll be born of a virgin. He'll be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah will actually die against every common sense that you would ever have about a king. He will die. Hey, he's not going to stay in the grave. He'll be resurrected. That wasn't just a few years before. They didn't have insight to what was happening in that day. This was 700 years before. 
God's word says it's God's word. Jesus says it's God's word. And the Bible has proven itself. So Jim Elliott and the four missionaries, they lay dead on the banks of this river. And he has a young widow, Elizabeth Elliott. They have a young child. And uh, you would expect them and really, uh, they'd have a lot of grace if they just retreated back to, to the States and started a new life, picked up the pieces of their family or picked up the pieces of their faith. I mean, if this happened to you and I, a good chance that you and I are having to to do some serious soul work here, right? But instead, Elizabeth Elliot, along with the families of these missionaries, they decided, hey, let's, let's keep praying for this group. Let's keep praying for some inroads to these tribal Indians. And they connected with some of the women and they began to to educate. You'll see, yeah, it's going out on me there with Elizabeth Elliot there on the screen. And they had these inroads to these tribal women. They began to help educate these these women. And uh, eventually they were able to move to the village in the middle of the jungle and live amongst them if they agreed to teach them. And they slowly started to help with the translation of the scriptures. It wasn't the whole, whole scriptures. It was just the gospel of Mark. We just spent four months there. And so the gospel of Mark was handed to these tribal Indians. One of the men who had speared these missionaries began to read the gospel of Mark and decided, I want to follow this Jesus. What do I do? And so they shared the gospel with him and he became a follower of Jesus. And they, he said, what, what do I do next? And they said, you share the gospel with others. And so he began to minister within the tribe there. Elizabeth Elliot and her daughter are living there. The family of these other missionaries had moved into this village and they began to share the gospel. This man, he just started sharing the gospel with others in the village. Slowly, people started to come to faith in Jesus. Like, I want to give my life to that. He said, what do we do next? He said, well, you, have a, you, you basically have a church. You know, you form a, the first ever church in this little tribal village in the middle of the jungles of Ecuador. And so they started the church. And this murderer, one of these guys with a spear who had murdered these guys, he became the pastor. And he began to just preach the gospel of Mark. And slowly they added to the gospel of Mark and started to expand in the New Testament. And he saw people come to know Jesus. And I want you to catch this, that the son daughter of one of these missionaries who was killed was later baptized by the man who murdered their father in the river where along the banks these men lay dead and so they weren't fools they were heroes and martyrs of the faith who opened this book and they took the great commission seriously go into all the world share the gospel it may cost you your life I pray it doesn't cost us ours, but it might. They took this book seriously and they said, we can trust it. It's trustworthy. John Piper says it like this. Bible reading is often viewed as a duty to be scheduled and fulfilled rather than a feast to be anticipated and enjoyed. And I just confess to you that I, I, I fall into this trap that this this book, it's like, man, I got to do, I got to, I'm busy and I barely have time to do the things I need to take care of today. And I really don't know if I, it's so I just, I'll spend a few minutes here. And so our prayer, the reason we're going through this series, the reason we're, we're sharing today is this book, Trustworthy, is not to add another thing to your list. It is for you and I to be invited to a feast on this book. That as we pursue Jesus, we discover him in these pages over and over again. Let's pray together.
God, I pray you would soften the hearts of Bayou City Fellowship, of our students, of our kids, of men and women, of me and my family. Would you just begin to soften and stir in our hearts a new love for you, and in light of that, a new love for the scriptures. I pray that we would feast together, that we would see the narrative and the story of Jesus that really begins back in Genesis and all the way through Revelation, this story of of uh, sin and then ultimately reconciliation and redemption and forgiveness. May we feast on that as a church. This morning we sing and we pray and we open the scriptures. We do so all in the name of Jesus Christ.